This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 140. In today's episode, I got to interview Dr. Neil Lester. He's a professor of English at Arizona State University, and he studies African-American literature and culture, including things like literature as we know it, as he stated here, children's literature, race relations, bias, and cultural appropriation. I wanted to dive into conversation with Dr. Lester about cultural appropriation versus appreciation. This was a topic I personally had a lot of questions on and that our village was asking a lot about, especially as we're moving into holiday season and things like Halloween or Thanksgiving, etc. And this is a topic that I think we could all really be diving into in our day-to-day life. Dr. Lester brought up so many crucial, important things for us to consider and to be mindful of in our everyday life. It's an ongoing process. This isn't something where you're going to have a conversation with a kid and it's going to be done and over with. This is something that's ongoing conversation. I learned a lot from this conversation and am really jazzed to bring it to you today. So let's dive in. Here's our conversation with Dr. Lester. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today, I get to hang out with Dr. Neil Lester. Hello, Dr. Lester. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Thank you. And yourself? Doing pretty well this afternoon. Good, good, good. good. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Can you share with our village a bit about who you are and your background, kind of what brings you here? 
Well, um, uh, I'm a, a professor of English um, here at Arizona State University. I just marked my 23rd year. Um, and I study African-American literature and culture from literature as we know it to children's literature, pop culture, race relations, uh, privilege and bias, cultural appropriation. And I've been doing that for about 30 years and always looking at literature as one lens through which we can read culture more broadly. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's huge. We have a certification program for child care centers. And one of the things that we incorporated was a box of books for these mm -hmm. schools to have access mm -hmm. to diversifying their bookshelves. I think it's so important. Yeah. And yeah, it well, starts so young. It does. And that's that's interesting because I've been one of few that I've come across who do both the African-American literature, but also the children's literature. And often people can do either or, but I've always integrated children's text into my teaching of adult stuff. So whether it's toys and things like I have here, I'm, I'm, these are these are toys, but they're actually bigger than toys. Uh, puzzles, dolls, all of those things become text and material culture through which we can read a whole lot of stuff. And children's books are certainly one of those things. I love that. I love that. I'm so excited to learn from you today. So we had reached out to our village and asked what they wanted to learn more about. And one of the topics that came up was cultural appropriation and really trying to understand for folks, what does this look like and what is kind of the difference here between appreciation and appropriation and how do we, how do we find that out? What does that look like for us as adults in order to be able to show up for the tiny humans and teach this? Well, it's, it's interesting because often when this conversation starts, it's most often after something has happened. Somebody has gone to a Halloween party and they've worn blackface and they're suddenly surprised that while they were at the party, everybody was like, oh my gosh, how cool is that? How edgy is that? That's awesome. And then they go to post it on social media and you recognize that that's not a thing to do. And the social consequences are not fatal, but they can certainly be detrimental to one's uh, social capital. And that's anyone from adults who are doing it as sort of a social thing versus those folks who are now in political office and those pictures out there in yearbooks uh, tend not to go away. So I, I think in many ways, it's not that complicated as people make it. There are various ways in which it manifests itself, but let's say the most obvious way I'll say is when one takes a culture that is not one's own and one performs that. What that means is that you dress up as that in a most literal way. Performance could also be where one sounds like. So that's when a lot of white people get into problem when they decide uh, that they're gonna start rapping. And they don't rap as themselves, they rap as some performance of something they have seen because it's cool and it's edgy. And it's typically white people doing it, but I also know that people of color can also appropriate, uh, whether it's not, you know, not necessarily in the same way and where the same power dynamics play out. So here it is most simply, I think, is the way in which someone has taken something from someone else, stolen it, and they get credit for it. It's a kind of plagiarizing where the people who created it 
are not necessarily the people who are benefiting from its labor. Somebody else is doing it. And so putting on blackface would be cool for, for white people, but black people who wear black all the time living is not easy as this summertime has shown us. So there's a disconnect between the sort of performing of that and putting it on because it's cute or it's cool or, you know, saying yas, all those those ways in which language becomes that, you know, and then we credit that to Lady Gaga and, and queer folks when in fact, my history shows that yas actually comes from black women in those black churches who were offering that as a kind of affirmation of what was going on in that kind of call and response. So there's a way in which one knows the history, then one can then self-censor what you're going to perform. And that's how the indigenous mascots come up. You know, why are we alleging that these mascots that we just got rid of after all these years this summer were somehow a um, paying homage to uh, Indians, when many are saying it is not, it is an insult, it is ridiculous. So the appreciation can come when I want to listen to rap music, but then I don't necessarily feel compelled to have to do it or perform it. So it is about the performative part of that. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think that's a clear like cut line for us as well. I uh, you know, I heard you mention the power dynamics and yes. looking at like dominant culture and the role that that yes. plays in cultural appropriation. Yes. Uh, yes. I think this is something white people really need to hear. Yes. Well, here, here's an example because it goes on so many directions. Uh, <clears throat> and it's even happening now to some extent in how we are approaching racial justice work. So you know, there are white people whose names we would recognize instantly in terms of books that you should go read right now. And it, it doesn't mean that those folks are not capable and intellectually able to deliver that. The problem comes because these white people who are these experts are not experts in the lived experience, yet they are the ones who are topping the New York Times list and white people would rather hear that from white people than from someone who looks like me, whose lived experience uh, certainly uh, matches what somebody else is writing about from some other perspective. So the, the, uh, the other part of that though is, you know, even, you know, I, I, I have to be transparent and honest is that when I received your invitation then just the naming of your program kind of, uh, it was a little odd <laughs> because, the, this notion of village, as I know it, comes from sort of, you know, sort of African roots. And so, you know, I wanted to know, well, who is this group? And does this group look like me? And is that in and of itself a kind of appropriation of an idea in the same way that we would say we want to bring my tribe in? Well, I understand that that's very specific to a group of people. For us to sort of do that linguistically, sort of potentially has us, have, has us sort of being complicit in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's huge to know. And when we started Seed, every single email was signed off from this, one of my favorite books, it's called It Takes a Village, and it's about this African village and yep. this child who's cared for throughout the day yep. within the village. And there was a quote from that that was pulled from, from that book that was in every 
the email signature and whatever, and really fed into the voices of your village naming and this concept of the village. And that resonated with me. And I feel like I grew up in like in a small town that had that village feel too, where like right. everybody pitched in and took care of each other. Right. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it certainly, it certainly extends to others. It's the naming of it that can potential signal, particularly when, and I don't know this, but I, I just wonder what the demographics of that, of your group. Yeah. Be. Um, and I say that because my initiative is doing stuff on parenting and we've had problems actually finding parents of color uh, and experts of color to talk about parenting. So even this, this realm of parenting has been mostly white females doing that. And so that's an interesting, it doesn't say anything about, about parents of color are not out there. It's just that the parents of color don't always have the luxury of doing what we're doing now, which is sitting back and being able to think about this and write about it and become the experts. And I'm having a conversation right this moment about issues of diversity, where we also talk about diversity of representation. So, you know, I, that, that wouldn't even come up. And that's what's tricky about this when we start talking about race relations, because I don't believe that all of these performances come from some place that is evil or vile. I think people don't often know the histories of this. I knew once I studied you know, the history of that NFL team, and I knew what that word meant, then I knew that I was not going to use it and that I was going to call attention to it by calling it out whenever I saw it. And so that's what I'm saying is that it's tricky. But then there, there are more obvious cases when you talk about Elvis Presley, for example, and the ways in which Elvis Presley's popularity was based on cultural appropriation. And it's an interesting twist that I heard on another show that um, Elvis's hair there's sort of this double appropriation where, um, you know, Elvis's hair actually comes from black people he saw at the time, black men who slicked their hair back. Well, the black men had slicked their hair back because they saw the white people's hair being slicker. So it's like this double layer. And, and notice Elvis' popularity as the king. And there are some folks out there who were his peers saying, but wait a minute, Elvis was only doing what the black people were doing but somehow the white people were more comfortable seeing him do it than seeing, you know, someone else do it. And the same thing for, for Pat Boone and Little Richard or, you know, Robin Thicke and Marvin Gaye. So there's a way in which white people prefer to be around and can create a space where they can stay insulated and just be with white people. I don't know that that can be said of other groups in this country. There are certainly segregated spaces, but I don't know if there's segregated spaces where black and brown people don't have to come in contact with someone who is not black. Particularly when we start talking about those people in positions of power, those people who are the managers, those people who are on the Supreme Court, those people who are your supervisors. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I, that's interesting to think about how like white people can kind of like be in their pockets and not have to interact outside of that. Ever. Yeah. In any meaningful way, in right. any meaningful way. I mean, you may have somebody who does your landscape or somebody who cleans your house, but you don't have to go to somebody, ask for permission to be off because you need, you know, uh, childcare or, um, to, you know, during this pandemic, there are lots of parents who don't necessarily have the option 
of um, childcare. And so the person you are most likely to go to, and I'm not talking about those exceptions, I'm talking about the people you are most likely. And then I would add to that, that you know we can't just say that as a blanket statement about white people, we can also say that that's also gendered, that those, the likelihood is that those folks are white men who may not understand you know, a single mom's need to have this sort of accommodation. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. When we're talking about cultural appropriation, we're talking about people who have the power to take something and then get credit for it. Because you could also go back to the story that we've heard something about uh, Jack Daniels, for example, and the fact that a, uh, an enslaved person actually came up with that recipe for Jack Daniels, but never benefited from that because the owner actually got credit for that. Or we could look at the story of Betty Boop and know that Betty Boop was this black woman during the 1920s. And this white woman saw her doing this act and just took the act on. And that's the Betty Boop that we know. So this appropriation is everywhere in music. I mean, the, the most obvious is, you know, Iggy Azalea, you know, and I, when I first heard that, I was like, wow, that's some new artist on the scene. And then I thought, okay, some of these words feel really exaggerated and very minstrel-like. You know, that minstrel tradition where black people, where white people dressed up, one of the earliest appropriations, allegedly as some enslaved black person that had been seen and danced around on the stage in these sort of coonish and buffoonish ways for the entertainment of other white people. So therein lies the thread here. And, and then the, 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 the sort of twisted part about that is that you hear Iggy Azalea and that's really not how she talks. She does not sing as she talks. Whereas Adele, for example, sings as she talks. Pitbull sings as he talks. So that is a kind of performance. So people have attached Iggy Azalea to this black scent. That's what I mean about the performance part. And I can't tell you how many commercials are out there, whether it's a Toyota commercial for Sienna van or, you know, my, my jammies that this, this, this nuclear, you know, typical all-American family, I want to say in North Carolina, that do these very clever uh, videos, but, but they're all, they're, they, they appropriate. There's one even on, you know, talking about your OCD. Well, we don't know if they actually have OCD. But that's another appropriation when we start talking about, oh, my OCD, when we use ableist language. So appropriation is really more complicated. And I'm not talking about stuff like food, like, oh, if I eat a burrito, am I appropriate? That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about the dressing up as a costume and having no awareness of the history of that um, and, and sort of doing it because it's edgy or it's cool. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for me, Labine, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, 
and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, and I, as you're sharing that, I was thinking of this Apart from Leila Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy, where she was talking about how within cultural appropriation is that the dominant culture gets to benefit in some way from the culture of the not the non-dominant culture, part of it that they had not gotten to benefit from, that they don't get to take off that Absolutely. Right? And, and, and trying that on. That's what kind of came up for me there. Well, and it's interesting also because now, um, at least in the circle that I'm witnessing, but there's a lot of conversation about capitalism now mm. and actually benefiting from this. And that if we talk about racism as its companion, as many are saying now to capitalism, then we can see that those who benefit most from it are the ones who are less likely to give it up or to dismantle it. And that's one of the things is that the laborers do the labor, but the people who benefited from it are the ones at the bottom. And that's a, what cultural appropriation is. Cultural appropriation is the way in which language is sort of appropriated. It's cool now, you know, for white people to say the N-word with the A on it because they've heard somebody else say it, so they feel like they can say it. And, you know, in, in another conversation, we could talk about that because I personally don't subscribe to any use of it that's not historically accurate. And so this social way that it's used does not in any way suggest that anybody has appropriated or reclaimed anything when it was never ours to begin with. Uh, but, to, but to get back specifically with the cultural appropriation, sometimes people want to get into the weeds and start talking about foods. Now, the way I see it, if somebody is going to open a Chinese restaurant and they have no connection to that culture, except they are using it to benefit, then that's a problem. The same thing with people who claim they're doing soul food, but you can tell that nobody in that kitchen has touched any soul food. Now, I also recognize that cultures blend. So if you're talking about black and Southern, you know, with somebody like Paula Dean, then you can see how those, but so much of what we know as white culture of the South has actually been influenced by black folks. And so much of what we know about music today has been influenced by black folks but black folks aren't the one who have most benefited. And when I'm talking about benefited, I'm not just talking about getting paid. I'm talking about the whole thing that goes with 
you know, the fact that white people don't have to be an entertainer or an athlete to be successful, the black people do. So there's a power dynamic. And I don't wanna leave this conversation somehow suggesting that it's only white people who can appropriate. Black people, brown people do it too. Um, you know, I've seen Beyonce, you know, do something that was uh, Orientalism in her videos. I've also seen her when with Destiny's Child doing something that was Native American, because that's real popular costuming now. It's the second finest. Um, all of those things become appropriate, but even in that context, Beyonce is the one that has the money. So she is the one that has the power in that context. But when we talk about this more broadly, socially, this has become racialized and gendered because too many conversations don't recognize that this popularity we have of men dressing up as women as funny really speaks to the ways in which misogyny and sexism. It's funny when a man dresses up as a woman because it's usually to entertain. I'm thinking Flip Wilson, Patrick Swayze, Robin Williams, Tyler Perry, Jamie Foxx. It's all done at the expense of women. And that is not the same as, as I don't read it as the same as when we see something like RuPaul's Drag Race, which is really about an artful kind of storytelling about femininity, however hyper-feminized it is. Yeah, there was a really good documentary that I watched about transgender folks in film and television that was on Netflix recently that talked about that specifically. And oh, really? How, What's the name of it? I don't remember now. I feel like... If, I'm going to look this up. Hang on. Okay. I'm going to mention okay. it. Because, and that, that's what comes out when we start talking about, you know, who's going to play the role. Yes. You know, the person whose name I can't remember now was going to place a transgender character. And people were like, well, why aren't you trying to get a transgender character to play that? And, and, and people say, well, that's what acting is. Well, that's true. But what about the opportunities for those who are transgender versus those who are cisgender? So start looking at that. And then you, um, and her name is like this close, Scarlett Johansson oh. was going to play a transgender character and got a whole bunch of stuff. And look at the roles that are available for transgender people whose story is not transgender necessarily. You know, that's what I say. Um the, I'm sorry. There's, there's appropriation of old people. I noticed that, you know, uh, when we talk about those systems of oppression, you know, ageism is one of those things that still becomes funny for folks. You know, mm -hmm. I've used to do it all the time. If you're going to be old, you have to have white hair and you have to hobble on a cane. And then you, you know, and, and then some of the seniors in high schools, when they graduate, they have senior day. So they dress up as old people. And, you know, I love doing this. I won't do it this year. But in Every Halloween, I would go to the spirit store and I would just look at what new costumes were there that feed into this cultural appropriation. So there's Nicki Minaj and you got to have big pillows in your bottom. And while it's not blackface, it's still appropriating an identity that is not yours and somehow benefiting from it, whether it's monetarily or social capital, because it makes you funny and it gets a laugh. Yeah, for sure. That Netflix doc was Disclosure. And every, oh, yes. yeah, okay. every human in it is a transhuman. And yes. yeah, it was so good. But um, yep. I think Halloween, let's chat. So I think that's yes. where a lot of parents, you know, right now coming into the fall are like, yep. that's next on the horizon. Although who knows what Halloween looks like in COVID life. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, like, uh, how are we 
how can we best support folks also within early childhood classrooms of um, really diving into culture and appreciating it and discussing it right. and sharing it and celebrating right. it right. without appropriating it? Right. Well, you can certainly appreciate it uh, without having to dramatize it or perform it. And, and, and I say, you know, what's interesting about this to me is that there are all these costumes out there. And I keep saying Halloween should be an opportunity for adults and for the, the, the children to come up with something that's more creative. You know, as Colin Kaepernick as a white person is not particularly creative. In fact, it gets you in a lot of trouble. Dressing up as a sexy Pocahontas, that's not creative. It's something that's more creative. Dress up as a, as a pineapple or dress up as a, you know, just something. Think outside the box. That's what it shows is a lack of, of creativity and imagination. So here's, I mean, it's, it's a simple test. Um, just because Disney puts it out doesn't mean it's something that people should do automatically because Disney has lots of problems with race and gender. And Disney has never been particularly conscious in um, addressing those in a very overt way. And we know the history of Disney that came from that sort of minstrel tradition. That's why these mice have white faces. That's why we would see Dumbo, for example, and those crows would be minstrel characters where they're just goofing and jiving and laughing and nothing, you know, that was of any substance except for the purpose of entertainment. Um, anything that has to do with changing one's skin color or painting so that you are painting your skin red or painting your skin black should be a sign there. You can be Princess Jasmine, for example, as a little white girl and just have the costume. You know, when you start putting on wigs uh, and I'm thinking of Afro wigs, you know, because if we're gonna do something in the 60s, parents, uh, we feel like we have to have an Afro. And I'm not talking about what people would call a Jufro, because I have heard that term in my research on hair and putting that in quotes, uh, but we're talking about an Afro, an Afro that was very popular during the 60s and 70s, that should be a sign because that's not yours um, and people own these experiences. And you know, sometimes people get bogged down saying, well, how can you own that experience? Well, we can look at how people are treated in this country and know that these are not things that people can take off if it's parts of their identity. I think it was one of the Ohio universities that has a campaign called um, My Culture is Not a Costume. So look it up. If, if a parent has a question about it, that's the first sign. Now, you can also surround yourself with people who will hold you accountable, but I would hope it would not just be about costumes, it would be about other things that we say and things that we think because we surround ourselves most often with people who think like us, have the same values. So somewhere in that group, we hope there'll be somebody that will challenge that. The other part is to step outside of our insulated social circles and talk to other people. You know, most of us don't have people who don't look like us in our circles. So that could be the first step. And that could also model for what you call tiny people or tiny humans, that diversity really matters. And this is not something that we're just rhetorically giving lip service to. So there are all kinds of ways in which there's no sort of, let's check this and check. If you've got a question about it, if you've got people around you who will call you on that stuff, then that helps us be better and it helps us to do better. Yeah, and I think some of it is stuff that 
uh, I know personally, like I hadn't even like thought of or called into question. And just the other day, you know, we were looking at setting up this new nursery for this baby and whatever. And we're looking at like just inspo ideas and saw like a kid teepee. And I love a cozy corner that you can like hide away in and have space in. But I was like, ooh, that feels like cultural appropriation. Like, first of all, like, I don't know the history on teepees. So I would have to do a little more research there. Like know that it's, uh, you know, uh, from indigenous folks, but like don't know much more. So have to do more research. But also like if you're buying a teepee from Target, uh, then like the... (laughs) person who's profiting from that DP, that's a problem, right? So uh, I think so many of these things come into our everyday life that we might not even acknowledge um, or call into question, right? We were gifted some clothes and there were these really adorable moccasin shoes. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are so cute. And then I was like, let's look up this brand and make sure that like whoever's profiting from this, that that's indigenous to that culture, right? Right. And I think within, um, I, I think especially with social media and there's so much that's shareable, there's this like picturesque whatever uh, thing that can happen through Instagram and Pinterest and whatever, both in classrooms uh, and in homes that there's so much that is, that, that we're not questioning, <laughs> you know? Well, and that's, that's, that's the whole sense, I think, of this sort of waking up that many are doing, many white people are doing to racial justice. I mean, you know, corporations are doing it with these statements that are coming out. And, and I would be willing to guess that 90%, if not 100% of those folks coming out with corporate statements probably have a diversity statement someplace. My question is, why isn't that diversity statement your social justice statement? Because that's what diversity should be always connected to. So that's what I'm saying is where have people been? And yes, I'm grateful that people are waking up from a slumber, but there are people who've been living these experiences of watching people appropriate that language or appropriate um, that that costume or appropriate um, an experience that is not a lived experience um, that, that, that profits equally from the people taking it. So that's what I think. The appreciation is I can appreciate a whole lot of things without feeling like I have to perform. You know, I don't. And, and what I mean by that is, is trying to sound like it. I don't mean karaoke because karaoke is a different kind of experience. But if, in fact, we're going to make um, a whole lot of money singing this song, Iggy Azalea, and then I see you on Jimmy Kimmel and that's not even how you sound, then that just adds to that performative you know, quality. And then there's that, that one uh, Toyota Sienna uh, um, van, I think it's called, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember what it's called. It's a, it's a van commercial and it's got the four uh, white people. There's always the heteronormative mom and dad and two kids and swagger wagon, that's what it's called. And they are talking about how they want to make this 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 van cool, but they start they start sort of performing with the posturing and the arms and the lips poked out, and the whole performance of that they go back and in in and out of their black performance gangster, and their white performance, and you can see those at play and you know their commercials for Ruby Tuesdays where this. Again, a, a mom, white mom, white dad, two kids. I think it's one kid there. They're at a salad bar and she just starts rapping, just randomly rapping because there's a new salad bar at Ruby Tuesdays. 
And the, the white dad is sort of looking at her like she's really odd. But what makes it cute, though, is when white people, and I've seen this in performances of choruses, there's a very fancy chorus around here uh, from a rich neighborhood, and they were doing the whipping nene. So they had the, the fancy clothes on, and they were whipping in nene, and the primarily white audience just was raving about that. And then I ask you, well, if there were black kids doing whipping nene, would it be raving about that? And the answer is no. It wouldn't be cute. Somebody would probably describe it as ghetto. But because it disconnects from the reality, then we can be entertained by it. And then, and then leave that performance and then go back into our comfortable whiteness that doesn't, can be separated. And if you, you know, the black people and the stereotypes can always be separated. So the fact that I have, you know, degrees published, done all that can't be separated for some people when I'm walking down the street. That's what right. I'm Yeah, no, absolutely. And so for parents who are like walking into this space, you know, you said like the Disney's of the world, like just because it's out there doesn't mean you need to, to buy into it. I am curious, like, you know, Moana just came up for me in my thought process of like, if you have a tiny human who's loving Moana and now right. wants to like be this character for Halloween or is really into how can, I guess, what are some guidelines and support for parents and caregivers, teachers to dive deeper into the history around this and teaching kids without appropriating culture on that journey? Well, first of all, you, you've got to do exactly what you just said, as I sort of stopped for a moment and said, is there a problem here with those moccasins and the teepee? So I think in order for us to sort of move the needle, we all have to be more thoughtful critically. And that's uh, not always a first place that people go to because we live in very fast paced. We need to get it done. We don't have time to think. But it really is sad to me. We don't have time to think about anything, and we're only relying on these sort of quick snippets of things for some immediate gratification. So I would say that because I'm a teacher, and I'm hoping that people, when they're reading literature, will go beneath the surface. But I know that that's, a, that's an ideal and not always a real. So you got to pause and think that. But you also need to be aware of what's happening in the world. You know, we can't, we can't exist in a bubble and then expect people to care about what's happening. And that's what I fear in terms of the racial justice stuff. The stuff that people are talking about um, since George Floyd wasn't stuff that just sort of happened this summer. And so there's got to be some awareness of why isn't that you haven't paid attention to that? Why isn't that you haven't been engaged in the conversation about the mascots? And what are you doing now that somehow makes your, um, your focus different? And that's the same thing with costumes. I mean, if you're thinking about a costume, first of all, do a little bit of research on it. Don't just do it because people like it. Disney will sell Pocahontas costumes, but Pocahontas is a fiction. And Pocahontas does detriment to the history of the real Pocahontas. So that's the responsibility of the adult in the room. And if the adult's participating in that, then it means that you're modeling something that you may not even be aware that you're modeling. So... If everybody's going to dress up, and as I said, you know, when I gave those examples of the white families, the white heteronormative family, there are two kids there watching that and participating in the performance. So there's got to be a lot of self-reflection. And I keep, I boil all of these conversations down to something that my particular um, initiative here at Project Humanities calls Humanity 101. 
is there any possibility costume could be denying some group or some individual their humanity? And what we mean by that is not some kind of, uh, you know, faith base, but integrity, respect, kindness, compassion, empathy, forgiveness, and self-reflection to sort of filter whatever that decision is through that. Am I being respectful? And, and we can't just dismiss this as you don't know what you don't know, because there are lots of things that we should know. We should know this. If we are adults living in this society, we should know that everybody's not treated equally. Know that whether it's old people or women or people who are differently abled or people who don't understand English or people who can't read and write or people who, who use sign language, there are all kinds of lessons about difference that you don't have to go find if you just open your eyes. And once you see these, you can't unsee them. Your behavior then becomes because you don't care or you're trying to challenge those to make some point. So that's, that's not a simple prescription because what I'm actually trying to get people to do is to sort of be better and just do better. And you don't have to, you know, if, if you have any question about it, then that's probably your first sign that you probably shouldn't do it. You know, I can tell you, and, and I speak for myself too, I have this, this shirt that I really, really like, and I wore it in the office, and somebody who is um, Latina said, you know, that's interesting because that's one of those Mexican um, uh, ceremony shirts. It's worn on a special occasion. I was like, oh, okay. So now when I look at that shirt, I don't know that I want to wear it because I did do some research and see that. And, you know, I, I think of the same things when I saw the, those Congress folks, you know, kneeling uh, with these kente cloths on. The kente cloths mean something ritualistically. Just don't put those on to go do a photo op kneeling. So that's what I'm saying is this is at so many levels. Folks participate in it too. I mean, I, I see all the black people who, um, you know, decide that they're going to somehow put on all these African garbs when they want to sort of connect with their roots. And I'm thinking of a, a play called Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry from 1959, where there's a character whose name is Benita decides that she wants to know about Africa. So she has a friend from Africa, guy who's a suitor. And she says, tell me about Africa. And, and, and part of her, you know, learning about Africa or asking him about Africa is that it's as though she can, he can get it, she can get it in kind of a quick, you know, here's five minutes about Africa. And she puts on a daishiki and then has an Afro and that to her is Africa. So Africa is bigger than that. Africa is also not a monolith any more than any other continent is. So that's what I'm saying is that black people can participate and do participate. In fact, there's an interesting twist to this because not only did white people blacken their faces, mostly men and entertain other white people, but then in order to be on the stage, then black people like Burt Williams, for example, blackened his own face. So there was like this double edge of appropriation in order to be successful for primarily white audiences. Yeah. So, you know, I still say modern day minstrels are people like Kevin Hart, uh, people like Steve Harvey, uh, who are always out there 
because they're there to give a laugh. And mainstream America is rewarding them, but they're appropriating an image and a, and a, a statement that has not benefited black people. In, it's held people down and actually led to the deaths of people. So it's way more complicated than just buying a Halloween costume if you stop and think about it. And that to me is sort of part of what our living is, is being able to think about stuff. Uh, and it saddens me that, that we don't have enough time. And I don't mean you have to think every single time you get in a car, every time you go out of the house. But, but on some level, when we're making decisions about this, particularly as they involve people around us, then we at least need to be aware that people are watching. Yeah, for sure. The tiny humans are always watching. <laughs> <laughs> always. And the grown-ups are always watching, too. It's <laughs> true. So I'm no one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. That was a very long-winded response, but part of that is to show that this is, this is far more complicated than Elvis and far more complicated than Pat Boone and Iggy Azalea, that it's sort of everywhere. That's why I wanted to make sure that we talked about dressing up as women. That's funny. We have whole movies about that. And it's different in the sense of a woman who dresses up as a man because there's a power dynamic between men in this country and women in this country. And it is rarely funny when women dress up as men because in those cases, often it's because they're trying to access something that men have, whether it's power or position. That's not the case when men are dressing up as women. Right. Power there. And I'm not talking about drag, the drag world. I'm talking about this sort of laugh, Flip Wilson stuff that's supposed to be funny. Yeah, no, I think that was an important thing to note. The power dynamic always coming back into play. Yep. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing yourself <laughs> with us. Um, I am just, I'm just sitting in here like wheels turning and I, I hope that other folks are too, you know, our teachers that are tuning yes. in as well as parents, just really reflecting on, oh, just intention in terms of like, what and impact, right? Like this, yes. this both of yeah. these of like, yeah, your kid really likes this or the kids are really into this in the classroom. We've heard this from teachers before right. that write emergent curriculum in early childhood. Yes. It's like, well, our kids are really into this. Great, let's dive deeper into it. Like, yes. <laughs> let's- do some research on it. And then, you know, shift, 
you know, explain why here's a problem. We, yeah. we just don't want to do this. There are ways in which we can come up with so many other creative ideas. And if we're going with a Disney character, just, just imagine that. How many times do you want to see six Pocahontas at the same time? So inside that proverbial box, use Halloween as an opportunity to be really creative. Totally. And kids are really good at it if we let them. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and again, I think the problem, and I go back to Madonna that I use in a different context. She says, all you need uh, is your own imagination. So use it. That's what it's for. And that's actually much harder than people think, because too often we can't imagine what we haven't experienced. And if you can't imagine it, then it is likely that you can't experience it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. Dr. Lester, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Thanks thank for you for out. inviting me and for reaching out. And I'd love to, to be able to share what you're doing with uh, people in my circle. So let me know when and if there are any questions that come, I'll be happy to try to revisit this. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. I will absolutely keep you posted. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. In this episode, Dr. Lester brought up the cultural appropriation of Voices of Your Village. And I interviewed him about a month before this is airing, and so we spent some time really diving into what's the history of the village and how does this show up culturally, what's the origin of this concept, and how does it show up around the world today. We absolutely should have acknowledged the root of Voices of Your Village in our very first episode. In 2016, NPR researched the origins of the proverb, it takes a village, and was unable to pinpoint them. Although academics said that the proverb is originally embodying African culture. There are a few different examples that show up of proverbs that translate to it takes a village or something related to that within African cultures. Some that translate to a child does not grow up only in a single home or a child belongs not to one parent or home. Another meaning, regardless of a child's biological parents, its upbringing belongs to the community. In Swahili, there is a saying or a proverb that translates to whomsoever is not taught by the mother will be taught with the world. There are many different cultures within Africa that really hold the root of this proverb, it takes a village. And so I want to acknowledge that and that this is not something that is new by any means. And it is something that we have seen around the world in many different facets. Many folks who live intergenerationally and have multiple generations living under one roof to help care for children, multiple cultures and villages where the entire village really does like step in to take care of the raising the tiny humans and supporting parents on this journey and supporting each other. And this is something that we talk about a lot here in America and somebody had reached out and said like where is this village people speak of and the reality is that culturally in the U.S. right now we often pay for our village most folks are not raising their children in a village in the traditional African sense 
of everyone really participating and showing up to support one another with food, with childcare support, with wherever this looks like across the board. And for us, often we're paying for childcare or we might be paying for a meal service instead of coming together to like combine meals and maybe even grocery shop together. I'm going to the farmer's market on Saturday and I'll pick up all of our groceries between these three families this week or things like that. But here in the States, I feel like we're really lacking. And when I was growing up, I grew up in a really small town in Western New York And my grandparents were five houses down, and it was very much a town where I could pop over to a friend's house and grab corn for our dinner or um, go over to Allie Ty's farm and get eggs. I felt like there was more of that traditional African village culture in the space I grew up in, where people were really caring for each other and for each other's kids and all that jazz. And I believe that this is crucial to raising children and that we have a lot to learn from African cultures about how to do this and what this looks like. To be in community with one another rather than here's a play date from one to three. And I want to honor the roots of this and really turn two different cultures in Africa to dive into this. And I'm, I'm really interested to do more research and to learn more about ways that these structures of raising kids in a village can translate here to the States or wherever you're tuning in from around the world so that we can all feel more supported on this journey. I don't believe that children are meant to be raised in isolation and solo. Um, I think that it is exhausting as parents to do so. So I appreciate Dr. Lester bringing this up and bringing it to my attention. And I encourage you, there's a book that um, is by Jane Cohen Fletcher. It's in our book list. We have an Instagram TV and a, a video in our Facebook group that goes through our book list. And um, it's called It Takes a Village. And it is about a little boy in an African village and him navigating throughout the day being cared for and supported by all these other humans in his village. And I think it's a beautiful depiction of this. I think it highlights and honors an African culture in these roots. So thank you, Dr. Lester, for bringing this up. And I'm jazzed to continue to learn. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you.
feel like you're the martyr in your family, you're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.